3: The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal Elders past, present and those emerging.
0: The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
4: There was more than 10 kilos actually returned to the mine. So, so this is gold that, that post all of the work that was done was actually returned to them as theirs that had been stolen. So, so, and the reason for saying that up front is if you sort of join the dots there, largest mining operation, most secure gold room, and then 10 kilos, more than 10 kilos, which is probably tip of the iceberg, has somehow gotten out of that gold room.
5: What does organised crime have to do with supply chains? And how is forensic science used to trace things like gold, diamonds and even food? These were the questions I had for Western Australia-based Cameron Scadding, who is a forensic and analytical chemist and founder and managing director of a company called Source Certain International. Over the course of his career, Cameron has worked on some fascinating and strange cases using forensic science to help solve crime. And he'll tell us more about one of these cases in more detail. The theft of gold from a mine in Kalgoorlie, the hub of the Western Australian gold fields. Cameron and his team also work to reduce the ways criminals can infiltrate the supply chains of products that we all rely on, even though we may not know it. Here's Cameron. Hey, Cameron, welcome to Australian True Crime Podcast. I'm really looking forward to finding out about the really niche and complex work you do in forensic technology. Welcome.
4: Thanks very much, Emily. Thanks for having me.
5: We're going to delve into the kind of stuff you do. And, I mean, I kept thinking of Indiana Jones. I'm like, you're tracking <laughs> and proving things. You're proving the things like origins of gold and diamonds and other, other things that I'd never even heard of that that can be done with science but Indiana Jones may be a a far stretch but it's actually really exciting and I never knew this work existed so what like why are you tracking these kind of high value items and and how is science helping this?
4: Yeah um, I mean I as a I, I think as a I think it starts with kind of as a kid right first you know like there's something cool about solving puzzles anyway i think most people uh get a get a kick out of certainly finishing or solving a puzzle and 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 we saw like you look at csi and all these criminal investigation kind of stories on tv there's an absolute fascination isn't there with with you know again solving puzzles but in the context or through the lens of solving crime and there is no doubt certainly from my perspective coming to Indiana Jones kind of reference, there's no doubt that that drove me to do what I did to start with. And it's, and it's no doubt that underneath even the work we do today that wanting to solve those problems and wanting to get to the the truth is, is the key driver. Um, The other part of that question of course, is why, which is your point around, you know, why do we trace these things and you know, again, there's a couple of parts to that. The, the first one is, is in the context of problem solving or in, in terms of investigation and, and criminal investigations um, in particular, and, and I'm probably going to ruin the, I guess, the romantic, um, I guess, look of forensics in a way. You know, our job isn't necessarily to go and solve the crime. Like, that's not what we do as forensic scientists. Typically, there are some very, very skilled, investigators that put together kind of the puzzle right um and they put all the bits in there sometimes we help with the bits you know we have some science that can help put the bits in but our job's kind of to to validate it in a way you know it's actually here's the picture yeah okay i I can we can provide you with information that verifies and validates that that's actually the picture right And, and hence the whole notion of evidence you know and so sort of draw that out a little and you sort of end up in this the world where, where source certain operates and it's okay so what's the value of validating the picture right so in the in the context of a crime criminal investigation it's about linking a person to something uh, it's about putting the other little bits of the pieces together that provides confidence that yeah okay that person has done something or or has taken something whatever the context may be so in the context of source certain, right? You know how, how does that 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 work, right? So from you know every time you interact with a supply chain, e- even if you imagine the last time you were at a supermarket, and I, I accept that you know most of us, most of Australia, certainly at the moment can only go at maximum once a day uh, because of lockdown. But 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 the but if you imagine that experience at a supermarket, you know you're walking in this let's say normally there's 25,000 products or something like that in the store and, and you get bombarded with all of these claims, right? And they range from, you know, maybe it's a quality promise, maybe it's a safety promise, or, or maybe it's an, a value-based one. You know, maybe you've decided, you know, for you and your family that you want to buy organic product, and I'm not advocating either way, but, but maybe you've decided maybe the seafood you purchase you know, certainly at Easter and Christmas time, which is when we eat the most of our seafood, so may, maybe you care that that's been sustainably sourced. And so, so what Source Certain is, is it's kind of a manifestation of that first validation, verification of the picture piece, which is okay, I'm now interacting with these things. They're making a whole heap of promises to me. Uh, can I trust them, right? And, and we are the verification piece. We're the bit that says that particular food has come from that particular location, that particular um, Diamond, um, if we jump out of food, has come from that particular location. The gold has come from that particular mine. And and all of the associated people, right, that, that go go into taking that product from where it's grown or where it's made or where it's dug out of the ground to something that we interact with, um, I, I can kind of trust in all of those, those promises that have been made. Now, we're not by any means kind of a silver bullet solution to all the problems that exist in supply chain. But but at the core of it, if we could trust the promises that are being made and and believe that the truth matters, which is kind of our underpinning kind of driver, um, then then a lot of the other stuff you know that that goes around it sorts itself out because you know the supply chain is is a system after all.
5: Yeah, I mean, I've never really thought of supply chains in that way. Uh, even going to the supermarket, I just think, yeah, I'm going to get my stuff, but. It's really interesting to think that, you know, supply chains can have a link to crime. And obviously, say, I think of, you know, drug dealing, drug syndicates, that's a supply chain. But why, why is a clean supply chain, and that's a term I learned on your website, why do industries rely on a clean supply chain and what, what goods are particularly affected by the kind of fraud that you, you get involved in?
4: yeah i mean i i think the the whole notion of a supply chain uh and, and what it is and what it does I, I think the broad community probably generally had had no real idea what they are and what they do and and i don't think and and if they did i don't think they necessarily cared that much right so you know at 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 its simplest form, it's there, it's the system, right, that brings us all of the stuff that we rely on, and that can be food security, it can be any number of things. So, and, and we're very fortunate, you know, in, in a Western country like Australia. I mean, we can go, for example, use the supermarket example, we can go to a supermarket, buy whatever we want, whenever we want, right, it's always there, right, and and, and behind the scenes are all of these web of supply chains, right, that that make that work. The, the notion of a clean supply chain, and, and it's a really... It's a really big topic and, and you know, what, what is susceptible to um, fraud? I, I think the first thing is, I think the first, I guess, hill that we've climbed over here is the consumers are now not just looking at the products they buy but also how they've gotten to them. And, and I think there's also a really illuminating point when, when, that, when people realise that, one, and you kind of made the point in your question, illicit and illegal activity is often a supply chain. Uh, legal activity is obviously a supply chain too, and and in a lot of cases they're actually as opaque and in the dark as each other, right? Uh, for different reasons, I will say, but they are generally opaque, you know. And so, so in order to to go from what this current status quo is, and 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 COVID has elevated this topic, you know, people are looking at these issues now. You know, how do you go and and fix some of this? Uh, and and the first bit is is you know, and I kind of flip your question kind of on your head, on the head a little bit, and say, okay, why do we want a clean supply chain? What, why does it actually matter to us? And and then what are the building blocks that kind of get us to there? And and the the why is actually reasonably simple. And it comes back to the the last answer, right? Which was we want to trust, right? We're actually built as humans to do that. We want to do that, and and we want to engage with something on the basis that they that you can trust it. But if it's a promise, in particular, and, and if you use a really bad example like um, poorly sourced or, or unethically produced, or potentially forced labour, or or potentially even worse under conflict, or or, or even even more serious organised criminal influence on a supply chain, all of that exists because of the opacity that's inside the supply chain, and the fact that just about anything can happen inside there. And so, so why don't we want it? Well, we want to make sure when we're putting kind of money in one end of the chain, because that's what we do as consumers, we're actually the source of value usually. Um, we put the money in and then it gets distributed through the chain. And the last thing we want, especially if we're committing to that purchase on the basis of a promise, is that that's flowing into, you know, any number of hands which are either the ones that, that, that we don't even know they're there or it's funding, you know, even worse behaviour um criminal or otherwise um of which you know i mean that's that's the absolute core to where the business started which was that intersection if you like of forensics and supply chain which is you know there are criminals use supply chains and and they use them using a whole series of different ways and and the first thing we need to do is build kind of those building blocks around transparency so you can at least see everything and then once you get to there you end up in this technology conversation around okay I've got a product. Maybe I verify where it's come from. Maybe that's a really good first step. Maybe if I know where it's come from, that's that's a that's maybe the most important step. And so that's kind of where we are. And we're early into the evolution, um, Emily, in terms of the the, the uh, you know the uptake of the service. The other part of your question was what, you know, what what's susceptible? To be honest, it it can be anything. Like you know, we've got examples where you know, obviously gold we're going to talk about, but diamonds. Um, up the high value end, but it can be counterfeit. It can be counterfeit pharmaceuticals. It can be counterfeit luxury goods. Um, it can be just misrepresentation or adulteration um, or misrepresentation of a brand. It could be adulteration of the food products. So it might not even be pure substitution of, say, wine. It might be that they've taken a bit out or or and put some water in or put something else in. Um, or, or you go all the way through to kind of the other end, which is where... You know, maybe it's a substitution of a food product or, or something reasonably benign, like a commodity grain, for example, and maybe the claim's organic, you know, and, and effectively they get a 20 or 30% premium because they've claimed that it's organic. And inside the 20 or 30% premium, you're laundering large amounts of of, of, of money um, on behalf of or, or because of an organised criminal. Um, influence. And so it can range for any of those. And, and I think probably one of the key things, and I think what people are realising is, you know, all of this happens inside the supply chain. It doesn't actually really matter which, what type of criminal activity, there is an interaction there somewhere. And we, all of us as consumers are actually the funding partner, right? We're the ones that put the value in one end and then, and then they're the, which makes it possible to launder that, that money.
5: I remember years ago, I was living in the UK and I remember being really surprised by the fact that, you know, there were all these tentacles to it. For instance, I, I where I met my husband, I did some work at the City of London Police and I was working as admin transcribing tapes. I were doing an undercover police operation and it was um, on behalf of the music industry about counterfeit cds but it was interesting but then what happened was that was a gateway into discovering that this group were making counterfeit credit cards and that's how Mm. it ended up and then it spun on and then um you know finding out that then also can what be involved what can be involved is you know human trafficking and i was like wow it's not just one thing it's not like buying your counterfeit cassette tapes back in the day in in bali and just going cool it's actually really complicated so I'm really all on board for this. It's very intriguing.
4: Yeah. The, the, I mean, that's exactly right. Right. And, and sometimes, and your example about buying the counterfeit um, DVD, I, I don't know if we use those anymore, but anyway, counterfeit DVD, um, it, even if it's about buying that counterfeit DVD, I, I, I think one of the really important messages, right. Is that it's not about the DVD, right. It, it, you know in the worst possible case or in the worst possible example uh it, it, that might be how you know very very average organizations which may be participating in all sorts of criminal activity including potentially terrorism might be converting money that they've made another way into something legitimate and so you know it's never as simple as a counterfeit product right and 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 then your, your point about the fact that it spins into so many other things is, is a reflection of the fact that organised criminal organisations, those organisations are actually very sophisticated. Um, they're not one-stop shops, right? You, you can't launder and, and, I guess, wash the amount of money that is transacted in some of these organisations with the laundromat anymore, like you can't do it that I know that's what was represented in the movies, the tattoo parlor down the road. You can't do it that way anymore. And so so what you end up having is a patchwork of very it's effectively a very diversified business model, right? Where and supply chains are are the ones they they do the heavy lifting here. They're the ones that are used, and and so one of our key strategies from source Certain's perspective is you know we're not about catching all the bad guys necessarily. You know we're about just making it hard to participate in the supply chain. You know like that's the bit we do. So it's about disruption more than anything else, right? And and so if we can make it hard for them to be there, we we generally accept. And and you know this is a little disappointing as a, I guess a having been linked to crime fighting, you know, as a, as a young practitioner, right? It's disappointing that they actually just go elsewhere, to, you know, and we don't catch them. That is disappointing, but it's something we can do, right? It, it's something we can actually get done and, and so you can disrupt it. And, you know, I kind of like and the analogy I use is all we do is turn the lights on, really, you know, and it's hard for them to hide in there with all the lights on. And more importantly, the people that are hiding them, inside the supply chain get a little embarrassed by hiding them and stop hiding them right so so you know it it, coming back to where you started it's never as simple as that one counterfeit dvd
5: now we're going to start talking about things that i like to talk about which are bright and shiny things like gold and gems i'm the daughter of a jeweler my brother's a jeweler i like stuff um now But you have worked on fighting crime, as you said earlier on, and we're going to talk about some stuff around gold. In particular, a big case, it's, you know, a number of years old now, but it was called Operation Icarus. And it was actually run by the Gold Stealing Detection Unit based in Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, and and Cam, you're based in Western Australia too. Um, I actually didn't know this gold stealing unit had been around in some form since 1907. Um, So before we get into this operation can you just for listeners who may not be aware can you just talk a bit about you know why is Kalgoorlie in Western Australia so well known and what what is the picture of gold in Australia the gold industry as much as you can explain?
4: Yeah so I mean Kalgoorlie is a is a West Australian mining town right and 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 has been since it was started and and it was effectively it's a gold mining town you know it's the gold a gold rush town so um, and and some of the biggest or one of the biggest um, gold operations, which actually this particular matter was based around, is based out at Kalgoorlie, and it was one of the biggest mining operations in the world. It's no longer the case, but but at that time, it was one of the biggest gold mining operations um, in the world. So, Australia, as most would know, um, is a mineral rich country, um, and we are in the top few countries, you know, for gold production, sort of nominally. A few hundred i think it's over 300 sort of tons of gold is produced per annum we we're in pretty good company in terms of um size of country too you know the other big gold producers are i think the last time i looked was i'm not sure which way around it was china then russia i think and then australia from from a gold production perspective so so and given our size you know the size of the country and our population we produce a lot of gold um kalgoorlie is obviously right at the right in the at the heart of that in terms of gold production there's and it's it's basically surrounded by gold mines uh and the gold stealing detection unit which you referenced in your introduction uh is 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 one of the and i don't know if it's the only one globally but it's certainly the only specialist gold investigation unit that i've worked with globally and obviously it's been in place for for Was it over a century now uh and and it came about because you know gold theft and stealing gold is as old as the gold industry itself and and hence why you've got a dedicated gold investigating unit And, and it's actually quite a specific technical kind of investigation area because you know once upon a time it was about digging sort of free gold out of the ground so nuggets and the like But nowadays, they can be very sophisticated operations, gold mines, in terms of taking large volumes of of dirt, if you like, and converting them into high value um, sort of gold bars on site that, you know, there are lots of opportunities for there to be high value product um, diverted. And and if you think about the scale of and the value of gold, um, that's why you've got um, a specialized unit there. And I've been fortunate that over my entire, I guess, forensic career, that particular unit and... You know, I, i've I've seen pretty much lots of the teams that have come through there now because obviously we're a bit of a common element. Um, but yeah, we I've, I've worked with lots of very, very skilled investigators over that time on lots and lots of different matters, with of which one we're going to talk about. But but there was a window of time uh, where you know, sort of in the early or the mid two thousands, if you like, where this was. Primarily what we did was gold investigations and, and and it came about obviously because of the value of gold, but there was obviously lots of criminal activity and, and it was done by very organised criminal um, organisations.
5: So let's talk about this operation, Icarus, because this was a big operation. There was multiple arrests and a lot of seizures of assets, like high value assets. So what can you tell us about this operation?
4: Yeah, so let's start at the end. Um, well, firstly, this was this was a couple of years of my life. It was a very big forensic investigation for me, and it was it was the, my first, I guess, really large one. There'd been smaller uh, matters that I'd worked on before, but but this was this was certainly um, and actually still remains one of the biggest, um, certainly gold one that I've done. Uh, So if you start at the end, what we ended up with was we actually returned um, to the mine Um, and, like I said, this was the biggest mining operation at that time in the country. It is no longer the case Uh, and it has probably one of the most sophisticated and secure gold rooms on the planet, right? So the gold room on a mine like this is effectively the most secure place because it's where um, you take you end up with what we call one gold right, which is the earth has been processed to the point where you are getting gold bars coming out, and and often they are very very large batches if it's a large gold mine like that. So you can kind of imagine. I'm not going to go into the actual details, but but you can imagine the scale and the value. You know, when you're talking hundreds of kilos of this, this very shiny metal, as you described it, um, being poured into a room. And, and then you can also probably imagine how secure that, that room needs to be. Um, as part of the operation, um, there was more than 10 kilos of gold, of which, you know, I would generally argue was probably the tip of the iceberg in terms of what was actually stolen. But, but there was more than 10 kilos actually returned to the mine. So, so this is gold that that post all of the work that was done was actually returned to them as theirs that had been stolen. So, so, and the reason for saying that up front is if you sort of join the dots there, largest mining operation, most secure gold room, and then 10 kilos, more than 10 kilos, which is probably tip of the iceberg has somehow gotten out of that gold room, right? It's no longer in the gold room. How on earth does that actually happen? And and then and then if you plug it together with the last conversation we had, it can't just be about the goal, can it? It's it it can't you know what else is kind of going on here. So the other outcome, um, and then we'll work through kind of what what actually happened. The other outcome was there was ninety six charges uh, and ninety six convictions. I think that number is still accurate. So. Uh, which, which is a very, very big police operation, and it was 23 individuals. So, okay, where did the individuals come from? Uh, and, and you kind of start getting into, you know, what else was going on here. But, yeah, there were 23 individuals, of which one of them was a senior gold room operator, so someone that actually worked uh, in the mining operation, and then there was, we'll call it collaboration, <laughs> orchestration with a uh, a very important security personnel, uh, of which of which enabled uh, effectively the, the siphoning or the smuggling of of at least ten kilos of gold out of that very very secure um, area within a gold mine. So so what was What was our role um, in all of that? So you've got a very secure place and very valuable stuff coming out of it. So police uh, intervened in the chain and actually picked up a number of samples of gold or or a number of consignments of gold just before it hit the gold buyer. So uh, this is effectively at this point in time just gold of which there was no reasonable explanation as to why it was there. Um, and so lots of questions around specifically, okay, how, how did this um, goal come about? Of which that's kind of where we play, right, is, okay, again, how, how do you start putting the puzzle together from an investigation perspective and then how do you start validating what that puzzle is and, and making sure there's evidence to support it? And it starts with where did that goal come? Um, actually come from. And so I think that the, from, from a gold investigation perspective, you know, we've, it, it's the perfect fit, right, for a technology like us. So we've got a very complex matter, but it started with some gold of which it wasn't exactly clear um, where it had come from.
2: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
3: For full important safety information visit juviderm.com.
5: So, so I understand, so you've got to prove the provenance or the origin of some gold. So this buyer is going to buy it? And you've got to have a certificate or how does that work?
4: Yeah, uh, you don't necessarily. But, I mean, um, you need to be able to, you need to know where the gold's come from. I mean, you've got to have a legitimate reason to be carrying um, certainly those the, that sort of volume of gold and, and certainly in the number of, obviously, consignments that, that hit the buyer. And so uh, the, the police were alerted to... Obviously the transaction um, or the fact that this gold was was starting to appear uh, and you know it's never one like I said it's never really one-dimensional there's always other bits and pieces around it and so there are other Intel you know which pointed towards there being something going something going on um, at one of the mining operations and it's not just it's not necessarily the one that ended up being that it's that you know it's a it's a big mining town and so there's always lots of talk about oh someone's found gold and and oh, i wonder where that could have possibly come from and one of the reasons why that unit exists is and it actually is based in the community is that it actually is part of all of those conversations and is and is always taking intel so there was some intel the gold was intercepted and and then the question is is okay whereabouts has it come from
5: so at what point did it get to the police was it the the gold missing or was it someone just going hey there's this gold out there bit sas what 's going on
4: yeah, it depends on the matter, so um, it, it can be driven by it can definitely be driven by the mining operation raising the alarm bells um, that that um, maybe gold is being diverted or smuggled out um, in this particular matter that wasn 't the case there was it was more around the suspicious nature of the the number of consignments and the consignments that were getting to. A buyer. I mean, it may, it may it may have been raised by the buyer themselves too. Um, depending on the type of buyer it is, and and if you understand, you know, again, this can be a very complex kind of supply chain with lots and lots of supply chain actors. Um, it doesn't take much though in a community of that size for uh, Intel to to start to bubble um around the fact that there's some you know potentially unknown sourced gold, um, and if it's material, which obviously, you know, if you think about the 10 kilos, it's material, um, then then it, there has to be explanations. And and it only takes a couple of questions usually to, to figure out that maybe there's not entirely, you know, the right thing going on here.
5: So this was back in 2009, I believe, that it all went to court and and kind of got settled in court. What can you tell us about the, as you said, the players in this? So there was a security guard, there was an employee, but where were the other sort of webs of um, organisation or, or individuals?
4: So, so like, like we discussed earlier, right, the most important thing here is, is you've got to tie the gold that is out of the gold room now and it's in the supply chain, if you like. You've got to tie it to um, the mining operation, right? So, so the, the most important part of our role in this uh, was okay we've got these this gold and it's not just one gold one piece of gold uh, but we've got this gold right the, the first thing that we did was we actually tied it back to a mining operation so and we'll talk a bit about the technology later I'm sure but but we effectively we 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 mapped it and we traced it back to a mining operation now that actually in itself isn't enough right because Okay, we've got questions now about the fact that the fact that it's in the supply chain and no one knows why, but it actually doesn't provide you with a lot of information about who the actors are, and so what we actually did is is we actually uh, we actually were able to push the technology further than that, and we actually identified uh, a series of batches of gold that were actually produced at the mining operation. Now, as soon as you get to batches of gold, you get to groups of people uh, because, like I said, that that particular part of a mining operation is very secure and and generally speaking in those very secure operations, you know who's there <laughs> and you can't just wander in and wander out. Um, and, and so once we got to the batches, all of a sudden you had your key actors, right? Uh, and And so the most powerful part of this was actually the sensitivity of the technology and being able to get back to those batches. Once we got to the once we got to the actors of which like I said one of them was a senior gold room operator and the other one was a security um, was security personnel. once we got to them uh, you, you can then start tracing out of the gold mines. So obviously these guys and, and there's a whole heap of different investigating strategies that you use to do this but effectively you know these guys were then connected to others uh, in the community. A whole range of different activities were then executed. So there were warrants executed on person of interest property, um, now convicted, but person of interest property at the time. And they found things like uh, great big crucibles, right, which were used to flux the gold. Um, and, and typically when they're fluxing gold, they're mixing sources of gold together to try and trick our technology. Usually that's what they're trying to do. And so we found all these crucibles. And on the crucibles, though, there were the, these beautiful micro spots of gold, right? Uh, and there were, there were about a dozen of these crucibles. And then inside the house, uh, we found a, um, a big chunk of gold that had been made out the back right, in these crucibles. Uh, and, you know, it was stored in a kind of kitchen canister, you know, near your sugar, a bit heavier than the sugar, but near your sugar, um, which is, you know, suspicious in itself. But um, so so we had all of a sudden we had a whole heap of other bits of gold uh, that, that came from these types of warrants. And so then, you know, it circles back to us again. You know, what can you do with that? And so what we did is, is we went and collected all the little bits of gold off the crucibles. Um, we obviously took samples of the big chunk of gold that was found in the, in the person of interest kitchen. Uh, and then what we did is we started tying all of those bits of gold back to batches of gold again at that particular mining operation. And it was the same actors that were part of that. And and so all of a sudden you've got evidence that tie the actors to the person of interests home. And so if you if you sort of fast forward through this part of the matter, what happened from there was there are a whole heap of assets seized. Um and, and actually locking down at the center of this investigation who those you know key actors were to start with led to a whole heap of different criminal investigations, of which uh, there was intersection with with illicit drugs. there was an inter- there was intersection with um, illegal firearms uh, there was there was a whole a whole heap of cash found and any uh, you know, pretty much any number of other potential criminal activities and so when we talk about the ninety six convictions, all of those are kind of captured in there and so you know circling back to our early point right it 's never as simple as the DVD, the counterfeit DVD. In this particular example, the gold was at least the centre point for us and the centre point for the investigation. It's not necessarily to say that the gold theft was the primary criminal activity. It might have been the drugs or or the illicit drug trafficking. But it just shows again, though, how much of a patchwork these organised criminal organisations actually are and the different types of criminal activity um, that they undertake
5: yeah it's fascinating so I'm thinking in my mind you know you're actually able to trace back to when people were working on a particular shift where a batch was made you know of that gold so it's fascinating what kind of money are we talking like what kind of value is this kind of gold gold stuff worth?
4: ah uh, yeah I mean if you yeah I mean it's a bit hard to know it obviously depends on on the gold price but but you know, I think currently it's thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars an ounce. I'm not sure. I haven't even looked to be honest. Um, it's lots, right? A small amount is a lot of cash. Um, and you know, if you think about it at, an, at a three, you know, if you think about three hundred odd tons is produced in Australia per annum, and let's assume ten percent, maybe is being diverted, or maybe maybe the 300 has been produced and maybe 10% on top of that, right, is going elsewhere, you know. And, and in this particular matter, you know, how effectively it was being executed was the gold room operator was effectively overpouring um, into the bars, right? And so there's this spatter material, you know, that's going into the gold room, which is then being smuggled out collaboratively with security right and so if you think about that you know and this was only we only returned sort of about 10 10 kilos but in reality it could have been a lot lot more than that and so this is not small I mean you're in the hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars and and at an industry level you know it's potentially billions of dollars uh, if if we don't lock this stuff down and and what I know uh, is that in that 2000 about 2006 to 2008, which is, uh, you know, from my point of view, I mean, it's the most active gold investigation part of certainly my um, forensic um, career. But during that, that couple of years, there were 189 criminal charges relating to gold and, and 610 about kilos of gold recovered and given back to mining operations. And so that's, that's kilos, you know, and we talk about, I mean, the price is per ounce, right. Um, and so, I mean, you can do the maths there. I probably should have done it, but, but it's, it's enormous. And that's just in that two year window. You think about the the history of GSDU, you know, which is over a hundred years. And so this, this is an enormous thing. and And so just about all of those matters over that, that couple of years which resulted in you know that 189 conviction or criminal charges you know all of them had a gold fingerprinting kind of angle you know the bit that we did you know that forensic investigation that we did
5: you're a lot smarter than me Cameron I'm actually going to get you to do some maths and we'll put it in the show notes about just as an example about what what gold is worth um but you mentioned the gold fingerprinting technology, and we've spoken yeah. a bit about it. That's very specific to your company. Can you yeah. just give us a bit of an idea about what it is?
4: Yeah, that's yeah. So we, I mean, so Source Certain International has a, a piece of technology that that we actually call um, TSW Trace now. But it but it came about from from a tech from a method or a technology which was which is commonly referred in terms of. And colloquially referred to and and even known amongst not just the general mining community, but also the criminal fraternity as well, um, as gold fingerprinting. So gold fingerprinting was was pioneered by my co-founder, John Watling. Um, So I met John uh, in the early 2000s uh, when we started working together. Uh, and we founded the, the TSW or the analytical and science business in 2006 and, and John's still with us in Source Certain as the chief scientist um, now. So he he pioneered that that method and effectively what it is, is that when gold is emplaced in the earth, so so when it when it comes out of a solution, a liquid, and and becomes a solid in the earth, it takes with it a whole heap of indicator marker elements and isotopes right so um, the chemistry of it is largely irrelevant to the general listener it doesn't actually matter but there's a whole heap of things that end up in there and they end up in there because the very very specific location in which that happened what we do is we go and measure all of those elements and isotopes and we build a fingerprint right and just like a human fingerprint Um, there are a whole heap of characteristic bits which are directly representative of that very specific location where the gold is actually put into the earth. And so what we do is we measure them and we build what we call a provenance database, if you like, um, which is just like a fingerprint database, you know, for humans. And then when we get samples, we compare to that database. And so we compare the fingerprints. uh, And what we're looking for are, are those characteristic you know, patterns like a fingerprint um, that we determine um, using a whole range of different sort of analytical technology uh, and and from that we can can determine not just necessarily where it's come from but in some examples we can also get a feel for what maybe has happened to it since it's been taken out of the ground um, or in the case of um, certain types of food, you know, maybe how it's been grown or maybe how it's been processed.
5: So interesting. I think we're going to have to get you back for another episode about diamonds because I think that's a whole other episode itself Um, and I love talking about diamonds, let's face it. Um, Now, I'm interested about the context of COVID because I've read a bit about how COVID's kind of forced organised crime to work a bit differently and there's definitely law enforcement that's taking a look at that. From the industries you work with and the work you do, has the COVID pandemic Changed any of your work or what people need in terms of their supply chains?
4: Yeah, it has. I mean, it, the it, I, we sort of briefly touched on this earlier on too the the COVID pandemic or or you know the disruption that the pandemic because it's not actually the pandemic that that's caused the issue in the supply chain, but the disruption that it's caused to I guess the ecosystem. Um, around the world that that manages and, and looks after our supply chains has done a couple of things. Firstly, it's exposed some really, really challenging resilience issues. So all of a sudden, you know, we don't necessarily have backup supplies, or maybe we don't have the ability to pivot in the in the if there if we if there's a particular challenge to the supply chain and and a really simple example of that is inside food right, in a country like ours we're very very fortunate that we grow a lot of what we eat anyway. Uh, food security though is not just about enough. You've got to be able to move it around. And so what we saw early on, um, even here and and you know we're at the top end of the 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 I guess the system from a Western country perspective, but what we saw was even even when we saw rolling, you know, lockdowns here in Australia, very early on, so you're talking 18 months ago, uh, what we saw are definite issues at point of sale where certain things run out, right? Now it's not to say that there's a supply issue, but what we found is some of those logistic things that that are inside the chain or are part of the chain didn't work as well, and and all of a sudden you know we needed to kind of pivot to local, for example, um, and it was it wasn't that easy to do, right? And so so it exposed you know some of the resilience challenges. Um, it also exposed there's some there's some other you know really critical things like, you know we're moving into this kind of electric um, revolution, if you like, um, where we're very focused on carbon and greenhouse gases. And, you know, frankly, we're going to have to mine and manufacture our way to that green energy future because, you know, we just can't do it the way we historically have done it. And we're going to need a whole heap of really important minerals. And what we've discovered is actually lots of them come from one country or lots of them are bottlenecked in one country. And so, so we're seeing lots of these things um, sort of jump up and and then the other thing is it's been contextualised to the everyday community and consumer. So there are a couple of parts to that. One of them is, you know, early on we talked a lot about PPE. So we didn't have enough masks. We didn't have enough gloves. We didn't have enough ventilators. Uh, and so all of a sudden the notion of a supply chain is something we're all talking about at home. You know, and 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 then layer that with the fact that we're testing everybody with advanced methods to see if they've got COVID, and so you've got this, this. Uh, you've, we've just lifted the base knowledge of the whole community about supply chains, and you've, we've lifted it with respect to testing. So that's that's the main driver that we're seeing. The organised criminal one is a problem solving one. So they, at a, this is very macro and very general, but what, what organised criminal organisations did, they relied on the complexity of all of the chains, the web of supply chains, if you like, that, that basically wrapped the world up um, and, and they lent into them to do whatever they needed to do, whether it was moving drugs around or whether it was about, you know, finding supply chains they could launder money through, uh, whatever it was, they relied on kind of the complexity and the opacity of it. Now, lots of those supply chains got disrupted <laughs> just because the planes stopped flying, you know, the ships, lots of the ships still sailed, but, you know, because of the demand for those ships and there are obviously other issues with the with the canal and whatever, uh, but lots of those ships, the cost of freight got quite expensive and so therefore people were being more careful with how they were sending stuff. And so there is little doubt, right, that from an organised criminal um, perspective that it has disrupted. I it, There is definitely challenges there in terms of they are finding new ways. I actually see it as an opportunity though. I mean, I look at criminal investigations through the lens of a supply chain. So I guess, you know, it's not surprising that I would say that. Uh, because there are less ways, because there are less supply chains at the moment, um, there is a really, really good opportunity for us to step back and look at the supply chain world and say, okay, Whereabouts are these guys likely to be operating, um, and are there things that aren't traditional law enforcement-based strategies where we can maybe grab hold of the the chain, constrain it, and disrupt it and get them to move elsewhere? And I think if you can do that enough, um, then you, it presents other kind of law enforcement opportunities to find them and and then you know potentially convict them. And so um, your your observation is really really good though, like it's. There is, there is no doubt that, that everybody is looking at the supply chains and saying, okay, how do we, what's our new business as usual? You know, what does this look like kind of going forward? I think the next thing's going to be, given all these lessons we've learnt, but also those changes that the, the criminals have made, what happens when we open up again? Uh, and can we learn something in the fact that the pandemic disrupted it can we learn something from that, that maybe as things start to, to, I guess, return to what was normal, that maybe we can see other opportunities about where, where we can intercept and, and potentially get some good done?
5: Yeah, I think we all got really fixated on the supply chain of toilet paper, didn't we, really, during oh. this? Um, I mean, that to me, that was probably been the most stressful part of the pandemic. And I'm in Melbourne. We've been locked down, homeschooling. Yeah. When all, that, when all the shelves were bare, that actually terrified me. I feel, like, kind of really edgy when I see an empty shelf now. I think it's this effect we've got.
4: Yeah, there's. I agree. I mean, uh, it just shows the power. I think it just shows the power of, of communication and the potential disruption from fear, right, because there were no rational reasons, you know, and everybody's talked about this, but there were no rational reasons for us to be necessarily running out of any of those things on our shelf, um, but what we did see, though, is that, you know, people do panic um, and and that's not necessarily wrong, Emily. Like, it's actually natural for people to do that. Uh, what we did see, though, is that our systems maybe weren't as, I guess, elastic and resilient as what they needed to be. The reality is, is that if you take, take toilet paper out of the picture and let's assume that it was... Uh, a fresh meat product or a fresh food product of some sort. And, and not in addition to the panic buying, we actually had like lots of countries saw meat processes were shut down because of COVID. Okay. Let's put all of those together and actually see what happens. And it's not to say we're going to run out of meat we're, that's not the case. We have enough here, but the supply chain isn't necessarily able to jump to other ways of managing it. And so lots of people ask me from a trend perspective, you know, what are you seeing come out of it? And to your point, I actually think one, people are very concerned about a bare shelf, but I think it's pushing us to look local. And so there's this, I mean, there's definitely a patriotic Australian thing going on, right. And we're seeing that in things like critical minerals and the like, but even at a kind of a, a, I guess, a local level for you and I and families, um, all of a sudden we're looking at where the food's coming from.
5: Before we finish, I just want to ask you, what's the weirdest or most unusual case you've worked on or, or object that you've had to kind of, I don't know, find find the, uh, where it's at in the supply chain? I'm just really curious because we've talked about gold, diamonds, food.
4: We've done so many different things. I mean, that's the thing about kind of, what is it now, 15 years, Um Oh gee, I mean it's ranged from we've talked about golden diamonds. Uh, my very first um, case was a, a, a burglary, so an ATM um, break and enter, uh, and so they basically cut open an AP, ATM, and and you know our part of the science was pretty pretty standard. So we we linked these tiny little metal particles back to a person of interest, um, and his car. Uh, I thought we were the best and most important part of that case because it was my very, very first one. Um, it turns out there was also molten bits of $20 notes in the car, so it was reasonably obvious something else had happened. Uh, you know, we, we, so my wife Rachel's work, I mean, her focus early on was on kind of Aboriginal artwork and, and I mean, her and I did some really, really cool work taking um, tiny micro samples from rock art paintings and linking it back to kind of the ochre deposits um, so yeah, there's been lots, I, I don't know if there's been any weird, weird ones from a provenance perspective. I mean, I've, we've had lots of very, very weird kind of inquiries, you know, as a, as a service provider. Um, I'm not sure if you recall the, I think it was, it was a ava, it was an avatar, the green, you know, the movie yeah. with the green men. Yeah. There was, <laughs> there was a, there was a scene in there that referenced, um, mining unobtainium. I'm not sure if you remember that. Um, you know, this rare mineral, right, which of course doesn't exist because it's unobtainium, um, but I rem- I recall vividly, you know, not long after that movie went to air, air we got a call in our office um, and I had this guy dead set. He'd found it. He'd found it, he'd found it, and we wanted to start mining it. And so I couldn't find John, who's also just, you know, a geologist, and I thought, is the perfect type of crazy to deal with this particular guy. I couldn't find him fast enough. I was like, you have to talk to this guy. So yeah, there's been there's been plenty of those types of things over the years. And yeah, lots, lots and lots of different things.
5: It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And when we can travel again within the States. I want to come and visit, so I'm going to make that uh, promise. I'll be coming oh, up and be maybe wonderful. doing a bit more recording. But I, I've really enjoyed this chat. It's so interesting. It's that other element of crime. It's you know, forensics isn't just about murder. It's not just about um, you know finding out um, you know these. Well, for one of a better word, every crime serious. I think, but yeah, like you know, the CSI type crime. So. Thank you for your time and we'd love to talk to you again. So, yeah, thanks so much.
4: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
5: Thanks to our guest, Cameron Scadding from Saw Certain International. Cameron kindly did some approximate calculations about how much the gold stolen in the Operation Icarus case could have been worth, and it's a lot. The details are in the show notes for this episode. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.
1: This has been
3: another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?